Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Chris McGough about leading during a crisis and fostering a healthy corporate culture. Chris McGough, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Yeah, it's been fun talking with you in the pre-interview and getting to know you a little bit. Uh, You have a fun personality, and I'm excited to have a chance to have a a lively discussion with you around leading during a crisis and fostering a healthy corporate culture. And I know you do a lot of work in this area, uh, so it'll be really fun to get some uh, of your insights and, and hear your experiences related to these topics. As we get started today, I just wanted to share Chris's bio with everyone. Chris McGough is a business builder, best-selling author, and advisor to business leaders throughout the world. He's founded, partnered, and invested in several companies in industries ranging from service and production companies to real estate and cloud-based solutions providers. He sits on boards and participates in venture funding to emerging companies. Over the past 35 years, Chris has helped hundreds of organizations and tens of thousands of people thrive in the chaos of the modern business environment. Chris likes to say, if you do something long enough, you eventually figure it out. Uh, And that I think just uh, fits with your personality. And uh, I I really look forward to to exploring your experience and the, the wisdom you'll be able to share with the audience today. So welcome to the podcast. Anything you would like to share by way of background or personal context before we launch in? I think it's, uh, it's fun to be talking to you, Jonathan, because both of us work in academia a little bit. I do some work at the University of Maryland in the Graduate School of Public Policy, and then I, I, I'm a practitioner. And I really like that kind of research-oriented part of my month and then my practical. And I know that you feel the same way and do the same things. So, you know, you can get too high in the ivory tower or you can get just two heads down in, in, in you know, work. But to kind of be with somebody who, who enjoys the balance uh, really is, is great for me. So I'm, I'm real excited to be with you today. Well, thank you. And, and that's, that's really neat. I, I do like the idea of being a scholar practitioner. Um, I think connecting the two worlds is really important. And one of the biggest frustrations I have in academia and as a scholar on that side of the equation is that, you know, I, I do a lot of research and I will spend a lot of time collecting data, analyzing data, writing up articles, submitting them to academic journals, peer review, the whole process takes years. And, and then I'll have this like really cool paper with all these really great insights. And then it gets published in an academic journal. And who reads those? It's other professors, right? And so, I mean, it's important. Don't get me wrong. I, I believe in the academic project of, you know, building on scientific knowledge. 
I think that's important. That's an important part of, of what I do. But I'm not delusional enough, enough to think that when I publish one of those research articles, it actually gets to the end of the stream in terms of getting to practitioners who, um, you know, who are on the front lines doing the work each and every day. And so it's only through these types of opportunities, through, through podcasting, through consulting, through working with practi practitioners, that we can start to translate that research and the academic side into a more practitioner-oriented space hopefully, so that we can actually uh, inform, you know, practice and, and help people improve their situation. So that's my goal. I know that's your goal. Uh, and, and I think it's a worthwhile endeavor, though it's a challenging one, because frankly, most people in academia don't have that mindset. Um, and, and so it's, it's sometimes kind of a bridge building kind of an activity. To know and not to act is not to know. Yes, absolutely. Well, as we get started today, I think first we should acknowledge that we, as we are recording this episode um, in kind of the middle of October, that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we're still in the middle of kind of social and political strife throughout the United States and really throughout many parts of the world. Uh, and it's, it's turbulent times. The economy's taken a hit, high levels of unemployment, lots of companies closing their doors. It's it's not for the faint of heart. So if you're an organizational leader, and you're trying to navigate all of this. It's it's difficult for sure. And so part of what we're going to talk about today is leading through crisis, leading through those types of turbulent times. How do you shore up your organization and your people um, so you can weather the storm and come out of it stronger, you know, and grow from the experience? Um, to start, though, I wanted to focus a little bit on culture. I know you do a lot with culture. It's super important to organizations in the best of times. And I would argue it's even more important during the most challenging times. So what are some of those elements? Well, first of all, why is culture important? And then what are some of those elements that you feel are vital for organizational leaders to consider as they try to establish and foster a, a dynamic and healthy organizational culture? It's the money question these days, Jonathan. I want to tell your audience, if you asked me 10 years ago if I'd be writing a book and speaking all around the world on culture, I would say you're out of your mind. I'm an engineer. I'm a business builder. Um, you know, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but after, uh, you know, failure after failure and like just, you know, it's, there's an 86% failure rate on projects that are complicated technically and complicated socially like when there's a lot of people involved and it's also pretty complicated, mergers and acquisitions, launching an ERP in your company, uh, you know, doing a reorg, introducing a product. These things are just technically complicated and socially complicated. We have an 86% failure rate and we've had an 86% failure rate for my entire life. And I've been part of that 86% failure rate. And I had a very wise client one time, a client I've had for a long time say, what are we missing? <laughs> it was about six or seven years ago. I said, what are we missing? And I'm like, the, it's the air. It's the context we're doing this in. It's, it's what people can get away with and what people can't get away with here. We're missing that. We're missing that conversation. And he goes, go figure it out. So I, I, I literally fell into this world of culture. And as people who are familiar with me know, I don't bring anything new to the market. I believe that Solomon was correct in uh, 400 BC 
when he said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. I, I made so much money on Six Sigma, TQM, all these, you read the book, you go and apply it, you do consultant stuff and an 86% failure rate. So all I do now with my two books, The Primes and Matching the Root Seller about culture is I go back in history and I find societies that were working powerfully, the expansion of the Roman Empire, the Mayans, long list. And I, I teased out what was common about them. And when I applied that to culture, it just popped right out. And I will tell you that you look at Uber, you look at Under Armour, you look at Wells Fargo, NASA, they, they're falling because of inattention to culture. And the list goes on and on and on. So uh, culture, here's my line, culture is the highest value off balance sheet asset you have. It's the highest value off balance sheet asset you have. And we've now figured out how to explain it and how to, how to set your sights into building a peak performance culture. I think we've got, I think we've got it figured out because all we did was take it from the past and applied it to today. Nothing new under the sun. So before we get too far, I know you have a big audience out there and I want to make sure Confucius says wisdom is the correct naming of things. The distinctions that are embedded in words cause power in our lives and culture. The meaning of culture is it is a red line that a group draws. It's invisible, but it's charged and it separates the behaviors they will tolerate and advocate for and the behaviors they will not tolerate. And it's enforced multilaterally. An administrative assistant will enforce the culture of the organization upon the CEO if the behavior of the CEO is one that the culture does not tolerate. So it's not top down, it's everybody working it. And whatever you tolerate becomes your culture. Whatever you refuse to tolerate becomes your culture. It's all about behaviors, not thoughts. It's about actions. Fascinating. It's just, it just blows my mind. And, and as a consultant that goes from company to company to company to company, including the five I own, it's so quick once you have that understanding that it's a line that the group draws, which separates the behaviors they tolerate from the ones they won't. You must have experienced this, Jonathan. You walk into one client at 10 o'clock in the morning and you assess their culture. Do they use profanity? Do they show up on time? Do they value integrity? You know, the fundamentals. Two o'clock in the afternoon, you're in a different organization, different thing, and you can see the culture. You can see it and it's different than the first one. But my question is, if it's so critical, if it's driving behavior more than policy, more than rules, more than laws, if culture is driving the behavior more than anything we try to do through procedural documents, then shouldn't we be really curious about what our current culture is and contrast it against the peak performance culture and set ourselves on a path for it? And I, I ended up at the end of my career with the most passion I've had in years. I just wish I was younger and I knew this. <laughs> I really do. Thank you. Thank you for that, that uh, kind of background in your framing of culture and the importance of it. I agree. I mean, it's so vital. I, I love how you talk about it being um, such a valuable off-book asset. You know, it, it, that's so true. And it's so interesting to me how many uh, executives and organizational leaders um, don't, or, or maybe they're not willing to, um, uh, put 
the energy, the resources, the time, the attention towards developing and maintaining a positive culture. Um, now, if you ask them, I mean, most most executives, most leaders are going to say, "Yeah, I want a I want a dynamic culture." Um, they'll say those things because they know that it's uh, the right thing to say, and they may even think it's important. But do they think it's important enough to prioritize so it gets their attention and their resources? Um, because it do, it doesn't just happen magically. Um, no, it does not. You don't you don't get to just say, you know, this is our culture and then wave your wand and then all of a sudden it happens, right? Like it has to be sustained over an extended period of time, the, the effort, the energy around it. And there's lots of different mechanisms that go in place to support it. And if, you, if you're not consistent, then it just, it just won't happen. And so that's what I see over and over and over again in organizations is well-meaning, well-intended leaders and executives that you know they have values and they have a mission and they they want a particular culture but then they don't walk the walk right and they don't live up to kind of the highfalutin attitudes and values that they state and they don't do that each and every day and so of course the culture doesn't manifest you know according to what their desires are there, there's no shortcut to get towards that culture and culture will emerge on its own it doesn't need any any help um, but when it emerges on its own, then you're stuck with whatever happens and emerges organically. And that often won't be healthy and it often won't be something that aligns well with your, your strategy and your desired outcomes for the organization. Um, so I, I just kind of monologued there for a bit, you know, explaining some of the, the types of things I see and the frustrations I have when I go work with organizations. But what would you say if you had to pinpoint like one or two or three things? What, what are organizations getting wrong with culture on a regular basis that they could pretty quickly change and fix? What a great question. Well, I just want to amplify one thing you said. Uh, and a term I'm going to put is there's a default culture 100% of the time. So to your listeners, um, after they listen to this uh, podcast, they're going to go back into their organizations. They're going back into a culture. 100% of the time, there's a default culture. But what you said is so true. We can shape it. With discipline, over time, we can shape it. There's a culture in your home tonight. There's a culture in your friends group. There's a culture in your business. It can be shaped. Well, then, how should we shape it? We should shape it perfectly. Perfectly. We should shape it into peak performance. Now, I want to kind of throw a little bit of cold water on myself here. Uh, I'm a real practical business builder and, um, and business advisor. Very practical, very accessible. Uh, I just want you to know that I don't recommend building cultures for culture's sake. I don't have the time to do that. I'm all about growth, profit, customer. I'm about business performance. I got dragged into culture. I just want you to know those executives out there, they want the best for their companies. They want their companies to grow. They want the best for their employees. And they're working hard to do it. We wanna add something to their, to their curriculum, to their efforts. We wanna add culture. I don't think it's, I think it's just, it was, it was just something that, I don't know, we just weren't thinking about it. See, I'm part of the problem. I'm one of those executives. 
I came to this late and I didn't even know that I didn't know it. So I want you to hear some good news. When I work with these companies now, they, they're hungry. It's easy to work culture into a company. They're, they're waiting for it. But there's an opening right now. It's not hard. And it, it, I don't care if it results in a peak performance culture. What I care about is, are you achieving your business goals in profit, in growth, in, in attrition? Are, is your business powerful? And it has to do many things to be powerful. One critical thing is to have a peak performance culture, not for culture's sake, for business performance sake. That's why we do this work. Yeah, you know I, I, I think I, I think that's right. Um, now, I you know, as a as a scholar, a teacher, a practitioner that does a lot with culture, I see a lot of intrinsic value in culture in and of itself. But to your to your point, so so there is a lot of value. Uh, uh, just having a healthy culture, it has all sorts of benefits. Um, for different stakeholders, for your people. I, I'm, for example, a believer in a people-centric, you know, culture and a, a people-centric organization. Um, but the bottom line is, if, if, you're, if it's not driving success in the marketplace, then the organization's going to cease to exist. And then, you know, then it's all for naught. So, so absolutely, we want to develop culture that aligns with our strategy, that allows us to differentiate ourselves, that allows us to continue to innovate, to be agile to pivot, you know, as necessary, you know, in relation to the market, um, and do that in a way that also, you know, reflects our core organizational values and the value we put on our people, and so on and so forth. Um, without that success in the market piece, it, it's all for naught. So, so that has to always be on the forefront of our mind as we're trying to uh, develop and maintain healthy cultures. Okay, we're writing the same book here. I, I, could, I mean, obviously, you know your stuff. Hey, let's just go back to your questions for a second. Now that, we, now that we have that framework set, let's go back to your question, which is such a good one. We're on a little podcast here. We can't do a lot in this short period of time. But you asked the question, you know, what are the one, two, or three real key things about a peak performance culture? And so if you'd like, I'd like to give them to you just one at a time to see if it's working for you. And if you want me to give a second one, I will. But I, after I look through all of history, everything that I do has to be proven in history. It can't be new. I don't believe in new things. Then it has to be relevant today, and I have to believe it will be relevant to business leaders a thousand years from now. So the answers that I'm going to give you are very straightforward. And the first one is peak performance cultures understand that the soul of their business is in the unmet needs of the marketplace. Their purpose in existence is to meet the unmet needs in the marketplace in a manner that the marketplace will pay them more for their services and products than it costs to make them. The company wakes up every day craving one thing, provide value by meeting the unmet needs of the marketplace. And it's in the ethos of these companies. The company does not exist to take care of its employees. It does not exist to pay its employees, to provide career paths to its employees. It does not exist to do that at all. In fact, if a company 
could meet unmet needs in the marketplace with no employees, it would. Employees are complicated. Now, in that orientation, that orientation upsets people when I say it. They're like, oh my gosh, you're not thinking about the people. You're not doing this. You're not creating a vital workspace. Not initially, I'm not. I'm telling you, the company exists to meet unmet needs in the marketplace. It is externally oriented. And it doesn't want to have people. But it has people. Because the company has determined it can't meet the unmet needs in the marketplace without these employees. And so it holds them close. These employees are vital to this company because it knows it can't meet the unmet needs in the marketplace without them. It takes care of them. It grows them. It provides career paths. It worries about attrition, not as its primary aim, but because it has to in order to do its primary aim, which is in the marketplace. I can't tell you how many companies I work with that are internally focused, especially now with your uh, uh, social things that are going on this summer and all of that. Companies have collapsed internally. And uh, that's a death spiral. That's a death spiral. So a company that's going to take care of its employees best is one that would rather not have employees but can't figure out how not to. They are deemed vital. And as it gains efficiencies, it will shed employees. So when you work for a peak performance company, you feel vital. You feel taken care of. You feel developed because you are deemed essential to that company so that it can complete its mission. So that's the first thing. Yeah, and can I just, for a moment, chime in? I, I think that vitality element is so critical because if, if, as an executive or a leader, I see my people as vital, to your point, that means I'm going to invest in them, right? Because you, you have to in order to get the kind of output and production and innovation that your organization needs to be successful in the marketplace. Um, and so that vitality is, is so important. And it's, it's fundamentally different than the perspective that you often see in organizations where employees aren't seen as vital. Um, they're seen as kind of dispensable cogs in a machine that you can easily replace, and, which usually isn't actually true. Um, it's much more complicated than that. And so, what you're, I, I like the way you're framing this, and I understand why some people might get a little upset with it, um, but you, your framing actually leads to more higher valuation of your people <laughs> with more investment into your people. That is correct. And you take care of your vital parts. You take care of them because you have to. Not because you want to, because you have to. Because you crave providing value in the unmet needs of the marketplace. It, remember, this is the greatest part about a peak performance culture. And, and if you want to really get deep into it, the Roman Empire, the, how did the Roman, how did they take over the whole Mediterranean so fast? I was really curious about that. And there were so many unmet needs in those villages. And the Romans figured it out. And, and that's why they built the roads. I don't want to go into it too much. But anyway, my point is, this is not new information. Your company did not exist at one point in time, but the needs in the marketplace did exist. And your company rose up out of the ground to meet those already needs. And then everybody goes, to me, oh, what about the iPhone? Steve Jobs built the iPhone. And he said, well, people don't need it, but they will when they see it. I'm so sick of hearing that story. 
listen, if you're going to try to pull off a major disruption in, in the, in the uh, marketplace, good luck. If you're going to try to create a need in the marketplace, get $100 million and 10 years, you might be able to pull off an iPhone. I don't advise on that. I don't, that's just every now and then somebody gets lucky. I'm talking about block and tackling business. And it always is in response to the marketplace. That is the number one, Jonathan, in a peak performance culture. And every employee knows it. When we're done with an intervention, they're every employee. Why does this company exist? To service this specific need in the marketplace. And if the customers don't have that need met, this is the cost to those customers. So we come in with a solution that is less than the cost of the problem. And they buy it immediately. Good. Go to town. I'll invest. That's number one. And it's the one that is mostly violated. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some people under the bus here. I'm not. I'm, I'm an acquired taste. But this problem has to get fixed in, in the majority of young people coming into the workforce. I'm belling the cat. They got it wrong. Yeah. Uh, the majority of them. And when we talk to them about it, they're like, wow, nobody ever told me that. Mm. Like you're not the center of the universe. The customer is the center of the universe. <laughs> this is not Chris, a jobs program. It's a company. Yeah. It's a C or an S corp. It's not a nonprofit. You know, it's not one of these cause things. We're, we're a company. So that's the number one we work on. And you know how we do it? We go out to the customers of this company that hired me. And I say, how does this company occur to you? How did they disappoint you even in the smallest way? What would cause you, you know, the promoter scores? And the customers give us all this information. And we go back to the people in the company. And we say, hey, we just asked your customers how you occur to them. Not how you think you occur to them, but how you actually occur to them. Don't make assumptions when facts are available. We want to ask your customers. Do you want to see what they said? Well, they never told us that. Look at all these letters I have where they say good. I said, they always tell you good things. You have to be a consultant to go get them. So then we just ask everybody, hey, what are you going to do about this? And now we're starting into peak performance. Because the changes we're making to the company were brought to us by the marketplace. Number two, I'm just going to give you the highlights. There's three, there's three ways of being and seven disciplines in a peak performance culture. They're in the book and they're on tapes and stuff. Number two, honor your word as your life. Say you're going to do something and do it like you said you were going to do it. It's called integrity. Say, do. There's no small promises. There's no big promises. There's only promises. Integrity. Give me 30 minutes in an organization and I'll give them an integrity score. I'm standing at the reception area. I can, I can tell you right now, this is going to work. Does the person come down and fetch me on time? Does the meeting start on time? Is everybody there on time? The minute I see, uh, you know, untidiness there, I'm like, their products are in trouble. Their services are in trouble. Integrity is precise. It means what I say I'm going to do, I do 100% of the time. And when I breach integrity, I clean it up immediately. You will not get peak performance if you don't value integrity and hold your word as your life in business. 
That's the second thing we go after. And what I make sure we're clear on is you're paying us as a consulting firm to get you a peak performance culture. You're going to get there much faster and much cheaper if every time you say you're going to do something, you do it. And I'll do the same. And what happens is the intervention on culture, all these people complain, oh, he's always late. Oh, I come to meetings 10 minutes late because it never starts on time. It's, 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 it's mind boggling how sloppy so many organizations are with their word. With their word. You started this call at exactly noon GMT. I was looking at my computer clock. You know why? I wanted to know if you had integrity. Do you know when you started this call? At noon. I'm glad I passed the test. <laughs> it was a test. And every single person on this podcast that's listening is being evaluated every single day. And remember, we lie little on up. We lie little on up. Hey, dad, can you come up here and help me with my homework? Be there in a second. Not true. We lie little on up. And everyone around you, people listening to this, everyone around you, all those people you come in contact with have scored you. They have an opinion about whether you're a person of your word or not. It is a test, Jonathan. I'm being tested. You're being tested. All the people listening are being tested every single day. And why do we test each other in integrity? We test each other to see if we can trust you. The stakes are high. So I'm glad you passed the test too. I'm glad I did. Yeah, because and it, it, it comes back to trust, right? You, you were just mentioning that. It, it, you can't have dynamic, healthy culture, high-performance organization without trust. If, if you don't have institutional trust or interpersonal trust, um, then you end up having people looking out for themselves, um, yeah. undermining each other, undermining their team. Gossiping. Gossiping, all the, all the negative disengagement behaviors. Um, so it, it really is essential. And it's amazing to me how often um, leaders and, and organizations are cavalier about trust. They won't be around long. And then they certainly, if they are able to stick around, they're not going to be um, as successful as they could have been, right? They're not going to attract the best people. No, nope. no. Nope. So, yeah. And, 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 the, and the cool part about integrity is I do what I say when I say I'm going to do it. I honor my word as my life is that's what is the foundation of a trusting relationship. What happens is you can't, ch you can't chase trust. In the research we've done, we don't put trust as one of the foundational elements of a peak performance culture. And the reason is, and this really surprised me, is the reason is trust is a derivative of integrity. They're not co-equals. When you're with a person who honors their word as their life, they show up on time, they do what they're supposed to do, and, and, and they've done that with you for a long time, they occur to you as trustworthy. And then you grant them trust because of a history of integrity. So integrity is the, is the 
it's the source or the opposite of trust. So trust didn't make the, the element of a peak performance culture. I, I found that fascinating. I tried to keep fighting it in there, though, but it was extra. It didn't need to be done. Integrity took care of trust. That's just fascinating to me. Well, Chris, it has been a great discussion and we are drawing um, close to the end of our time together. We could go on and on and on. In fact, you only got to two of your three things and, and there are so many other aspects we can hit. And so perhaps I could invite you back and we can have uh, continue the discussion and extend it um, to another time. Um, but I appreciate all of your insights that you shared and in the historical perspective that you bring to the table and the focus on success in the marketplace, because ultimately that's what will allow organizations to be sustainable. Uh, before we wrap things up for today, I did want to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, uh, find out more about what you're doing, uh, and anything else that you would like to share. You can find me on the internet. I got a lot of stuff out there, but I do have this uh, resource for you. Um, it's, it's on a site called theprimes.com, the primes, P-R-I-M-E-S, theprimes.com. I've loaded up there these truths, these ancient truths about performance, and I put them into little videos. And people like them, and they can share them. You know, you can watch a video and think, oh, this applies to us, and you can send it to your friends and things like that. So I try to be like real generous with all this stuff. So theprimes.com is a great little place where I keep my, my stuff that uh, people might find interesting. And then the two books that I, I'm, I'm really, I don't know, I feel like an archaeologist kind of going back in time and finding these truths. The one is called, uh, the Primes. And it's a picture book. I made it for my children, but then Wiley picked it up and, and it went out. Uh, but it's the truths I've learned about how organizations really reach their fullest level of potential. That's called The Primes. And then the second book, which we just put out, is called Match in the Root Cellar. And that's all about peak performance culture. And so there's, there's ways that people might, might find useful. I'm a pretty straightforward person. You can probably tell my way I talk. And my books sound like that too. They're they're fun to read. They're accessible. And, you know, high school kids read them. It's, it's, they're, 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 they're easy to read. Excellent. Well, thank you, Chris. It has been a real pleasure. I hope listeners will reach out, get connected, check out Chris's books, uh, check out the website. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of great things we can take from this historical perspective and, and a focus on successful organizations and peak culture. It has been a fun conversation today. And as always, I hope everyone stays healthy and safe, that they can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.